Well, good morning, church. Oh, thank you. Uh, it is so good to see you guys all here this, this morning. And um, boy, we've been having some fun through the book of Exodus. Um, I've really enjoyed the book of Exodus. It's one of those books where um, I think the more you study it, you get to see more things of God, of who God is throughout the book, and we'll look at that some of this morning. But this book is just uh, rich in showing God's goodness to his people. It also shows the power that God has over his created world and how he is active within it. There are, are a few things that people know pretty well about the book of Exodus, right? We know about the birth and the life of Moses. Uh, we know about the ten plagues. We know about the crossing of the Red Sea. Well, first the Exodus, then the crossing of the Red Sea. And then we know about the Ten Commandments. And everything else in the book kind of explains more in depth about uh, those events, and it sets the stage for the amazing and the miraculous events that God does for his chosen people. Even when the people are complaining, God still shows up and does some amazing things for his people. The book of Exodus demonstrates the, the lengths that God will go to to save his people. Granted, we know of another amazing way that he demonstrated his love is through the, um, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. But at this point, we don't have that knowledge in our book, but we'll kind of keep it in the back of our minds, but we do. But what is amazing and is a God thing is that a student of Scripture can see Jesus in the book of Exodus, and then we can see Jesus throughout the whole part of the Bible. It's um, amazing to see how God took human writers and how he orchestrated his theme of his love and his character throughout the book of the Bible. It wasn't like these authors got together, sat at a convention, and like talked about, okay, how do we want to put this together? It didn't happen that way. It happened by the Holy Spirit guiding and directing each person. And because of that, we had this overarching theme uh, in the Bible of God's redemptive love for his creation. God's redemptive love for his creation. This morning, we're looking at Exodus chapter 12, verses uh, 33 uh, through 13. And that's a big section, and so I'm not going to read the whole thing throughout the, uh, the morning. We're going to pull a few things out where we'll read those together. Um, but there are some things we want to highlight as we go through the scriptures this morning. Three hows. So if you want to write them down, you, there's a, um, in your um, note-taking section of your, of your uh, bulletin, um, here are the three hows. How do the Israelites leave Egypt? Granted, we all know that one for a fact, but we will talk about that. How did God show his glory among them? And how are the children of God to worship Yahweh in return? Those are the three hows. How do the Israelites leave Egypt? How did God show his glory among them? And how are the children to worship? How, how are the children of God to worship Yahweh in return? Okay, so let's look at the first one. How did Israel leave Egypt? Well, let's open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter twelve, starting at verse thirty-three. The Egyptians urged the people 
to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites traveled, journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot, where they were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds, with the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt. They baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and didn't have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept uh, vigilance that night to bring them out of Egypt. On that night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. So how many of you can relate to the haste that is being expressed here in the text when you're planning for a trip? Right? Many, uh, maybe for some of you, um, you're prepared well in advance for your trip. Some of you have your bags packed uh, maybe a week or maybe two weeks in advance prior to leaving. Having been a youth pastor um, and working with a whole variety of people over the years, um, I've encountered many different people on the preparation continuum, I will call it. Okay? I have people that have been have had their bags packed for two plus weeks. I had one person who had their bag ready to go for one of our missions trips for like a month. Like, how do you live like that? Like, don't you have clothes you need to wear? But they were packed and ready to go for like a month. And then I have people who are literally, I kid you not, literally still packing their suitcases as mom and dad are dropping them off in the parking lots. Okay? So as you can tell, I had a wide variety of people I worked with here. My wife especially uh, doesn't feel like a road trip can officially begin without coffee in her hand. Amen. Specifically, specifically a quad shot Americano, okay? And her reasoning behind that is, well, she has to deal with the kids. And so she feels like, I have to have that in preparation for the trip to deal with the kids. She didn't say husband. She said kids, okay? That's true. She loves me that much. Um, being the person in charge of trips, I'm always last minute of packing myself. I'm not the person coming to the parking lot, though, doing it. Um, but thankfully, though, over the years, Anna has, been, has had my back and has packed me um, ready to go for trips. But I'm up late most of the times before trips. I always have the goal to go to bed like at 8 o'clock. No, it's probably like one, two in the morning before a trip because my mind won't shut down. I'm trying to think, do I have this packed in the trailer? Do I have this? Do I have this? Like five different lists are going in my mind at once about making sure everything's ready to go for our trips. Growing up, my mom always told us that we need to leave the house clean before leaving on a trip. And there was two reasons for that. Um, the first one is, is it's always nice to come home to a nice, clean house after you've been gone for a while, right? Like, I think most of us can kind of agree to that and appreciate that. The second one was always way more dis uh, like, um, uh, disturbing to me in some ways. 
um, she said that we wanted to make sure the house was all clean because in case all of us died on the trip, the people coming into the house could see a nice orderly house. And she always made sure, too, we had clean underwear on as we left, too, because that was just what, yeah. So, anyways, if you know my mom, that's how she always did that. And she was, first hour here was just redder than my shirt when I mentioned that. But we all have our little pre-trip rituals that we do before we leave on trips. But the Israelites didn't have the opportunity, didn't have the opportunity to go and make their Spotify playlist, to go to the coffee shop to get their coffee, or, or to go to, uh, go to the house and make sure it's all tidy and cleaned up. They didn't have the opportunity. If you see in verse 39, it says, they were driven out of the land quickly. They didn't have time to prepare because of the 10th plague, which was the death of the firstborn in Egypt. Pharaoh, once again, he called for the release of the Israelites. And we, we see that this is the third time he did it. The first other two was at the, at, the, uh, at the plague of the locusts and the plague of the hill, where he says, get out of here, I need you to go, and then he changes his mind. But this time around, there's more of a, a new sense of urgency in Pharaoh. And he calls them out at night, right then and there, Without a moment to lose, he's, saying, he's basically saying something like this, just get out of here, leave. I don't care what you take, just go. Maybe what you, some of you do with guests that are staying too long at your house. Right? Just take what you go and just go. Like, I don't care, just leave. But that's what he's kind of telling to the Israelites, just, just get out of here, get. And the people of Egypt are even urging the Israelites to leave quickly as well. The Egyptians give away their gold, their silver, and their clothes to them. In, in fact, in Exodus chapter 3, um, God speaks to Moses in the burning bush, and he says this in verse 21. He says, I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians." The idea to plunder the most powerful nation in this region is just mind-blowing. Like this small little group of Israelites are going to plunder the Egyptians? But that's what God says here. And the term plunder is actually a military term which um, makes reference to stealing, to ravaging from a group of people that you've just defeated. But the kind of plundering that God uh, told Israel to do was asking, which doesn't seem like plundering, but that's what it was. They're asking. And literally, the Egyptians were overwhelmed by all the plagues that they couldn't take it anymore. This is another example of how God showed his power to Egypt, and again, he defeated them by this act of the Israelites leaving and plundering them but also that God always keeps his promises. He always does. For Israel to plunder the Egyptians was a direct promise that God had made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. This is what it says. It says, The Lord said to him, Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. 
the Lord always keeps his promises. So how did Israel leave Egypt? They left in a hurried and in a victorious way, and not in a defeated way whatsoever. They left victorious. And as is common theme with God's people throughout scripture, the nation who was the greatest in power and strength and ability is lowered than the smaller nation. And that smaller nation defeats them at the hand of God. So the second how we're looking at is how did God show his glory and his power? This how is answered by how God removed Israel, but also in how he revealed himself to Israelites in visible ways. This portion of Exodus has to be, um, this be taken in the context of, of the 10th plague. Exodus 11 through 13 really all go together and not broken up. They, they really are one solid unit, and when you read it. Um, but God shows himself to Israel by the fact that they are spared the death of the firstborn as long as they have the blood over the doorpost, right? Then his glory is shown in Pharaoh telling the people to leave right away. And from the last of the plagues, through God leading them through um, them out of Egypt and beyond, Yahweh's hand is guiding them. He's setting them apart as his children, and he won't let them go. Then one of the most amazing and powerful examples of God's glory, and, and one that I remember like being in Sunday school with the flannel graphs and stuff, you know, showing this next illustration um, and watching it on um, you know, movies, is this in Exodus chapter 13 starting with verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, through that, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them, the people, around by the desert road through, uh, toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He said to them, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Ethan at the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. God directs his people with a pillar of cloud at day and a pillar of fire at night. Everyone in Israel could see these examples of God. It wasn't just a small little thing that was only for the people who are the up front of the group of people. I mean, this was huge. The whole nation of Israel could see God guiding them. They could see the pillar of, uh, of cloud. They could see the, the pillar of fire. And it was always in front of them. It was always in front of them. It was guiding them. There are visible symbols of God's presence among his people. They also symbolize God's presence and his reassurance of God's goodness and his faithfulness to his people. It's incredible to me how rich symbolism and the patterns of those symbols are in Scripture. 
the way that God chooses to reveal himself over and over again. The idea of the two pillars, one of cloud and one of fire during the day and night, reminds me of the significance that God places on light throughout Scripture. Light reveals what is hidden, and it helps make sense of what can't be seen. Right? Have you ever tried to like walk somewhere in the dark? Like You stumble over things. Light shows you what's there. What obstacles are around you? The children of Israel, as they exit Egypt, must have wrestled with both of those ideas. They couldn't have known exactly what was coming or what could come about of all this that's going on. But the protection of light and the cloud that God provided them 24-7 helped them to make sense of what they couldn't see. It guided them. It reassured them. It brought some comfort and some safety to them. It reminded them that they were not alone in this journey, that God was there with them, leading them. Later on, John would write that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That the very thing that we can visibly see with our eyes is sourced from the one who is light itself and is unseen. It's like God's way of helping those of us who are more visual learners. We have to see proof and know truth by what we can see. So God took his people along a route that didn't require them to have to fight. You imagine you've been enslaved in, in, a, in, a, in a foreign country for hundreds of years, and then the first place you have to go is go fight? Like, these people weren't ready for battle yet, even though in scriptures they were they were. They were prepared themselves for battle, they weren't fully capable of defeating any of those enemies yet. So God took them a different route, a better route for them. God, in his infinite wisdom, knew that if, he, if they got into a skirmish with the Philistine army, they would want to go back. And later on in, in, the, in Exodus, you see that when they're out in the desert, they complained to Moses that they want to go back to Egypt, right? So God knew that this was going to happen. So instead, he takes them a different route, different way to it, to where they needed to go. And how many times does that happen to us? That we come into a, a crossroads and we know that if we go down this path, it's going to be shorter, but it's going to be filled with a lot more obstacles, maybe more problems, temptations, issues going on. Or we can take this other path that may be longer, but in the longer, it's easier because we may not have all the issues and things to deal with that maybe the shorter one had to come up with. How many of you guys have ever played the game of life? Okay, in the very beginning of the game, you have a choice to make. You can either go to college or go right to the workforce. And going through college requires you to spend more time and it costs you a little bit more. But in the end, you have a greater chance of scoring higher achievements in the game if, than if you went to the workforce, according to that game, okay? But it holds true that in the longer the route and the more you invest, typically the bigger the reward is in the end. Sometimes we want the short route, the more comfortable approach. But what does God want to teach us through that? Maybe we need to catch a glimpse of who he is and be reminded of his character and his intent for us. The key in going through situations 
is listening to God and watching where he's taking you. It can be difficult at times to know where he's taking you. But know for a fact that God has your back. And honestly, that is super comforting to know that God has your back. And the thing, the thing that I'm constantly reminded of lately is that faith isn't just a blind, dumb leap into the unknown. Faith is moving. It's being active in what we know to be true. The character of God is steadfast and it's faithful. And along the way, our faith grows under trials and under circumstances. It is refined and it's defined the more that we go through those things. See, God shows his glory to the Israelites by guiding them in ways they could visibly witness. <coughs> Excuse me. They lived in Egypt for 430 years under the rule of Pharaoh, who didn't know the contract that Joseph had with the Pharaoh beforehand. And then this new Pharaoh comes in and enslaves God's chosen people. And then he feels threatened by them because of how populated they've become. See, when they first came in, Joseph's family only had about 70 people or so. And now 400 years later, the nation of Israel has become probably, according to the text, somewhere near 600,000. Now, granted, there are some other estimates of it being closer to, to 2 or 3 million, but 600,000 is what we see in Scripture. And all this was told to Abraham by God that this would happen. Yet still, God continues to give Israel reminders in some very visible ways of his protection for them of their value and their worth to him. Despite their difficult enslavements for hundreds of years, he still loves them. He's still protecting them and still wants the best for them. What doesn't change was God's faithfulness, even through the times of Pharaoh changed his mind on, his, on their freedom and their release from bondage. God stands by his word. He promises to remain faithful, even when his own children doubt it. And even when they complain about it, and if you read the scriptures, you see that over time and time again, God's people are constantly complaining and grumbling about what God is doing or not doing. Kind of like what we do sometimes, right? The third how we're looking at is how is Israel to worship God? In this passage in Exodus 12, through 13, there are three forms of worship, response that is given. The first one is Passover. The second one is the consecration of the firstborn. And the third is the feast of unleavened bread. So let's first look at the Passover. The Passover meal was, um, is an everlasting covenant promise with God's people. This is something that they were required to do often. It started first at being in their homes, more like just a, a private family thing. Then it turned more into a, a corporate worship experience. And then around Jesus' time, it became more of a, a pilgrimage festival kind of thing that people would go to. And the Passover was, was to, to celebrate and remember the, the angel of death passing over the homes that had the, the, the lamb's um, blood on the door frames. It was also for this, 
The sacrifice of the Passover lamb is a constant reminder to Israel that their life came from death. The Israelites' life came from death. The Passover is a celebration of Israel's redemption from Egypt. Something that they were not to forget about. And for a Christian, the Passover is really closely tied to the Last Supper. It was during the, last, um, during the Passover that Jesus um, had a Last Supper with his disciples. And the Passover is a lasting reminder of God's rescue. I'm sorry, the Passover is a lasting reminder of God's rescue of Israel. And the Last Supper is a lasting reminder of God's final act of deliverance from the bondage of sin. At the Last Supper, there is no lamb but Christ himself who is a sacrificial lamb to atone for our sins. And there are no bitter herbs at this meal that Jesus had, which would have been very common in the Passover meal, but instead there was bread and there was wine to represent the blood and body of Christ. See, a new covenant was coming with the new covenant comes a new meal and comes new elements as well. I'm just making a collation for you guys to kind of see some things here. I was kind of, my mind was going crazy as I was studying this stuff this week. Uh, Passover um, was to be celebrated and the story of the Exodus is to be passed down from generation to generation to generation so that they would never forget what God had brought them through and how faithful he was toward them. It was something that they were to talk about, to celebrate, to remember that God, what God has done. In a lot of the same way that we're supposed to do with communion, Last Supper, same kind of thing. Pass it on, remember what Christ did for us. Now let's talk about the consecration of the firstborn. The consecration of the firstborn is a reminder for the once for all substitutory death of the beloved firstborn son over all creation, Christ himself. By Israel offering their firstborn, they were acknowledging that they belonged to the Lord, they were his, and he was theirs. And the process of how they were to consecrate the firstborn, which is, you find that in Exodus 13, is it allowed for the firstborn animals to be sacrificed and then redeemed by the sacrifice of a firstborn animal, which either be... um, Killed or sacrificed. For example, a donkey is an unclean animal. But it had to be redeemed because it was a first, if it was a firstborn, it had to be redeemed. And so what they could do is they could, they could sacrifice a lamb instead. Now, interesting little thing for you to like pick up here is the donkey is an unclean animal and a lamb had to be the sacrifice for it to redeem it, what did Jesus do when he came into Jerusalem? He rode in on a donkey, an unclean animal, and the sacrificial lamb was sitting on top of it. Isn't that interesting? It's amazing, the the visuals that we get through Scripture and see what happens um, through God's Word. And instead of consecrating the firstborn sons, they were to instead redeem them by sacrificing a firstborn animal instead. 
So even the firstborn sons had to be redeemed. And so they had to use a lamb, a firstborn lamb, to redeem that firstborn son back into the family. And all the while they were to retell what God had brought them through so that the redemption was possible. So they would not forget about where they have come from, how God redeemed them. The Israelites needed to show their appreciation to God for what he did. Honestly, if you really want your mind to be blown, is go and study the significance of the firstborn throughout Scripture. It's absolutely amazing uh, and a beautiful reminder of all that God has done and will do through Jesus. And for those of us that, that receive Jesus into our life, call him personal Lord and Savior, then we get placed in the same category as the firstborn, and then we become co-heirs with him on the throne of God. Read, read about it in Romans chapter 8. The huge significance of the firstborn, starting all the way back here in Exodus, and it plays its way th- throughout the Bible, even today. And lastly, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was yet another worship practice Israel was to partake in. So the Israelites, they left Egypt in a, in a hurried yet victorious manner. Scripture also states that in their haste, and we read a little bit ago, but I'll read it again for you, that they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Basically, in the promised land, the people of God were again, were supposed to again to worship in remembrance of what God had done by retelling their story. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is initiated by the celebration of Passover, and then it's celebrated for seven days afterwards. And the law of the Lord was to be such a vital part of their lives that they were to literally and always have it on their minds and constantly be talking about it. If you're catching the kind of a theme I'm talking about this morning is, is the constant remembering and, and, and um, sharing it and telling other people and their kids about what God has done for them. The Israelites were required in law to, to remember this stuff and to share it, to pass it on down, to have it on their minds and on their tongues so that they thought and what they spoke echoed the heart in the law of their redeeming God. So how was Israel to worship God? Through the practice of remembrance and retelling of what God has done. And then in the past, in the past, but then into worship what God is going to be doing in the future. See, here's the thing about the Israelite people is that they were, they were God's chosen people. They were chosen to share who God is to everyone at that time. They were basically kind of like his, his missionaries. That's what, what they were really, what they were supposed to do. But they failed in many ways in doing that. They failed to continue to share what God was doing in their, in, in their lives and to, and to tell the world about it. One of, the, one of the neat things as you read in this, these passages as well is that there was a group of other slaves that weren't Egyptian, that weren't, sorry, they weren't Israelites who left with the Israelites as well when they were leaving. Like, it was like they were a smaller group of people and like you imagine a big group leaving, like I'm just gonna pretend I'm one of these guys and leave as well, you know? And they left with them and they become part of the Israelite family. But granted, there were some things they had to do to become part of that. But in the scriptures, we see that these other people become redeemed through 
the Israelites. They, come, they become part of the Israelite family as they were leaving as well. When worship takes on the practice of remembrance and retelling of the goodness and faithfulness of God, we maintain our place before a holy God, a God who doesn't forget his promises. So as you can see, the Exodus is not just a heroic heroic story about a group of people leaving the bondage of sin and heading out into a new life in the desert into the promised land. It's way more than that. The Exodus is more about the how. How God shows the world his love for a group of people that he will do anything for. There's no limit to the length and the depth of his love. And the events of the Exodus out of Egypt for the children of Israel says more about the character of God and how he brought them out and less about their own triumph over, over slavery. This would be a completely different story if this was all about how Israel got out of slavery. But it's more about how God rescued them and took them out of slavery. Ultimately, God wants us to remember who he is who he is. It's all over the plagues. It's all over how God took them from point A to point Z and then everything in between as well. It's in the remembering of who God is and how he, how he acted on our behalf. And we get a bigger and we get a better and we get a fuller glimpse of this reason why. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and listening to this and you might find yourself even wrestling now with why questions. Maybe not about this, but maybe about other things. And multiple times throughout our life, we do wrestle with why. God, why is this happening? God, why this? Why that? And it's good. It's okay to ask those. Oftentimes in, in our youth ministry, I, 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 I want that. I want the students to ask those why. Why is this happening? Why is God doing this? Because it's in those moments that we can grow and we learn more about who God is into those whys. Now, there is a danger, though, in this. And the danger is, is that when we spend too much time reflecting and pondering on those whys, we can get calloused and we can get um, disheartened with God. And our whole attitude shifts to a different place. Become bitter and angry towards God if we let the whys fester for too long. But it's okay to ask why. It's good to ask why. And in order for us to understand why, we need to understand how. You see, in understanding how God loves, how God acts, how God works, we get a better glimpse into why. When we start to understand who God is, we get to better understand our why to certain things. This week, I challenge you to take some time out and, and, and go and reflect with God for a little bit. Have some alone time with God. Practice maybe some, some worshipful remembrance. When was the last time you actually took time out of your daily life and remembered what God has done in your life? 
Maybe you do it on Sunday. That's great. But what about the rest of the week? Do you remember what God has done for you? How he's done it for you? Why he did it for you? See, the Israelites were supposed to do this often. And as you start reading through Scripture, you realize they messed up multiple times. And when they came back to it, like, oh, man, we got to do this, it was beautiful what happened when they remembered and they started worshiping God for who he is and how he rescued them. So for you, again, take some time this week. Spend some alone time with God and remember what he did for you. All over scripture, God is constantly reminding his people, his chosen people of who he is and why he can be trusted over any other God. He's constantly calling his kids back from other loves. Constantly. Looking, looking judges, looking the kings. You, you see it over and over again. It's like this random pattern. Like They did good inside of the God. Then they did evil. Like good, evil, good, evil. You see it over and over again. And in all this, God is constantly calling his kids back. Come back to me. Come back to me. And a lot of times he's doing the same thing to us. He's calling us back. Maybe we've, we've drifted away and, and he's putting little things in your heart and your mind to like, come back to me. Come back to me. Remember this? Come back to me. And the sad part is his children often forget all the goodness that God has done. See, that's the importance of remembering. Remembering what has come so that you can celebrate where he's taking you. Circumstances will change. Life will look overwhelming. It will look enormous. But where is God, you might ask? Where is he during those times? I need the reminder in my own life all the time of the character of God. See, it's constant. It's always faithful. He's a good, good God. He's good on his word. He's good on his promises. And he's here to remind us that he's not left us alone. When you feel that you are completely left alone, you're not. The Israelites were leaving Egypt, leaving the only place they've ever known. And then they had these pillars to remind them that God is there with them. And it comes into play here very soon in the next, few, in the next chapter when they get up to the, the, the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea we see that, that the critical point in them, and Ed will talk about that next week, but how important it is to remind ourselves that we are not alone, that God is there with us. The Exodus is more about the how. How does God show the world his, his love for a group of people that he will do anything for? And then it climaxes into God sending his firstborn son into the world that he created to die so that we might live. God is the redeemer, and through him, we have been redeemed. We have been set free. The whole story of Exodus is about redemption. And you can't talk about this without talking about the redemptive power that came from Jesus. They go hand in hand. So how will you retell of his goodness? How will we worship in a way that screams out that he's worthy, that he's faithful, and that we are redeemed. 
How are you going to live that out? How are you going to retell that? How are you going to tell the people about that? So the Israelites, were, I told you earlier, were required to tell the people about how God's do, God doing their life and what's going on. So how are you telling other people? How are you telling people of your redemption story? Or maybe for you, you don't have that redemption story. You know what? If you don't have that redemption story, I would love to be able to talk to you about that. I would love to, to start you on the journey on the, about having that story so you can tell other people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are, you are so good, and we are so thankful for um, your redemption. We're so thankful for the examples you give us in Exodus and, and uh, what we see there and then how it translates all throughout history to the point to where you came and you died for us and that we could have eternal life. So we thank you for that, that beautiful uh, illustration of redemption. God, in these next few moments, as we, as we worship you through song, that, Father, that we would take some moments, that we would be quiet maybe before ourselves and, and uh, before you, and we would kind of really reflect on um, the message this morning of redemption, this, the message of, of retelling the story that you have put inside of us. But maybe, Lord, maybe we would need to get right before you this morning. And so, Father, I pray that during this time of worship that we would take this moment to realign ourselves, to get ourselves recentered back into what you've called us to, to be, is to be your children, to love you, to, to, to always have you on our hearts and our minds couple of things as you leave here this, this morning. First off, remember of your redemption story. Remember how God has brought you out of bondage to, to, to sin. And go and tell people of that story. You're the one that people are waiting for to, to share that hope and that love. And then also, um, just on a, two different side notes here. The first, this first one is we have a lot of students graduating. Um, many had great accomplishments this year. And if you see some of them, give them a good pat on the back and tell them well done. And uh, maybe um, if, you're so, if you're so inclined, which would be fantastic, is you take a moment and pray for them. Pray for, pray for um, God's protection for them as they go off to school or wherever God's taking them. Um, but let's send them off in a great, great way. And the last one is a little more of a personal one. I wasn't planning on to, but I did it first hour. I thought I better do it this hour too. Um, that, um, that this is my last sermon with you guys. If you hadn't heard, you know, at the end of August, I'm no longer be the youth pastor here. All good. God's moving us on to some, some different things. Um, but this is a kind of more of an emotional sermon for, for me today. Um, and uh, last time I get to see up here preaching your guys' wonderful faces and your encouragement over the years. Um, I can remember just the times from my first sermon to now. Uh, people joke about it, and it's true uh, how far you know, God has taken me and what God's doing. Um, but you guys have been a huge support to me and to my family over the years. And um, I wouldn't be the pastor or the man that I am today without all of you being part of my family. So I really thank you for that. So go out. 
give people Jesus this week. See, see you guys later.